USAopoly is the company behind your favorite top quality custom board games made with brands you love. They're your source for authentic hot pop culture board games and puzzles. They also create award-winning tabletop experiences that will keep your game nights fully entertained with laughter and shareable memories. For more details, go to usaopoly.com. That's U-S-A-O-P-O-L-Y dot com. Politic 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome to Star Trek from the Holodeck, the Discovery Edition. And I am Michael Flores, your host, at the bridge, in the captain's seat, and alongside me, my communications officer for today, David Sabal. Communication lines are open, Captain. All right. So today we're going to be discussing and breaking down the latest episode, episode eight of season one of Star Trek Discovery, titled Si We Spackum Parabellum. Did I say that right? I hope so, because that's the best I'm going to say. It sounds like I'm uh, exercising demons. I'm reciting <laughs> I'm reciting Latin. You're, you're, you're probably exercising the Pavans. Yeah. Oh, look at you jumping ahead there. <laughs> Slow down there, buddy. <laughs> Very excited today, aren't you? Oh, today was actually, dude, this series, this series just keeps me so happy. I know. As a Star Trek fan, I'm like going, now we get we get an episode with an away mission, yeah. which is something that I've been waiting for. Yep. That's the first thing I thought. As soon as they were going down to the planet, I just put my hands up in the air and I was like, yes, finally an away mission. You can't have a Star Trek series without an away mission, right? Oh, yeah. And we're eight episodes in without an official away team, right? Yeah. And, and that that narration by Burnham in the very beginning with that basically, it sounded like an old Star Trek film yeah. or Star Trek episode from the original series. Yeah. When they go into, they when they start an episode and they're just on a planet and then you hear the narration of Captain Kirk saying what they're here for. Yeah. And we get that with Burnham, and I'm like, like, that is actually a really cool touch of nostalgia there. It's cool. I mean, and that's something we haven't really discussed too much, but even Burnham's voice, her voiceovers for her log is spot on. It sounds just like the what we've become accustomed to when captains or other officers are doing their logs. Oh, yeah. So, all right. So we got a lot to get to. David despite the fact that you completely derailed me <laughs> again. Yeah. Um, a lot to get through in this week's episode. This episode was directed by John Scott and written by Kirsten Bayer or Bayer. I apologize, Kirsten. However, she is a writer with a very long, extensive resume. She's been involved in Star Trek in some way for countless years. Um, The synopsis for this week is the USS Discovery is tasked with a high priority mission to the planet Pavo and learns the science behind the Klingon's cloaking technology. All right. So Kristen or Kirsten Bayer, 
let's just call her Bayer. We're going to go with that one, David. Okay. Absolutely. Let's at least try to stay consistent if we're going to mess up their names. Flexed her Star Trek know-how this week by delivering up the goods that felt so much like Star Trek of old, but also instead of just the member berries that so many people are, are on a mission to deliver to people without any real substance. Yes, please give me nostalgia, but don't give me any substance. I'm happy with just remembering the good times. This is where Star Trek Discovery is changing that up. In a decade, David, not a year, not the last couple months, in a decade where we are given member berries. And that's my, well, not my, but the South Park way of making fun of nostalgia freaks, where they don't care what they're watching. They don't care if it's well-written. They don't care if it's well-acted. But if it reminds them of a time when they were so, so young and they grew up watching something, it makes it better. And that's something that I was very afraid for Star Trek Discovery. I did not want them doing that. I wanted them to be a different show. And they have delivered week after week something very different, keeping true to the spine of what Star Trek is, but also giving us something very different and unexpected week after week. And this is where Kirsten Bayer comes in. She knows Star Trek inside and out. She has written countless novels. Uh, for Star Trek. In yes. fact, that's where most of her her experience comes from. Mm-hmm. And that's the dedication that Aaron Herberts, Herberts and his fellow co-showrunners and Alex Kurtzman had when they wanted to do this show. They filled up that writing room with Star Trek freaks, people who are just like you and I, fans, people who know how to write and people who are old school Star Trek Nutcases and Kirsten Bayer falls into that category. Bayer falls. We're not going to be consistent with her last name, are we? No, unfortunately. <laughs> Kirsten Bayer falls into that category. She's one of those those longtime novelists who understands the ins and outs and you know the nuances of Star Trek. So she delivered a an episode that just felt spot on. It felt like Star Trek in almost every way. Uh, And not only that, but we were given insight into what makes Saru tick, David. And that's what I was talking about. It's not about just the member berries. It's not about just the nostalgia. And I want to feel like I want to remember how it was when I was a child. They take the nostalgia and they double down on it. They're like, all right, well, you know what? We're going to give you what you want, what you expect. But also we're going to give it our own little twist and we're going to use it to propel the story along and that's exactly what they did this week. And that's that's the thing that we've been harping on for the, the the strength of this entire series so far is the fact while they've been doing that, they don't take away from what the core story is all about. It's about Burnham and the people around her. And for me, I was really happy they actually delved into Saru more and it, it made Saru more, I don't know, more... I don't want to say believable, but more relatable. Yeah. And that's a good word for it because, you know, in a nutshell, and we're going to break this down after our first break, but in a nutshell, that's exactly what they, they're trying to do with him. And that's what they should do with every character in a TV show. Find that little nuance that makes them relatable and then exploit it so that we can connect and care about this character week after week. And the interesting part about his character is 
how he was designed. He's a species, of course, that we've never seen in Star Trek before. But they created the species not as an interesting Star Trek element that that feels like Star Trek, but also just focus on the fear aspect, which is something they keep bringing it back to. Because just in the way his character was created, the prey species, the definition of a prey species and how he is afraid, how he lives in fear, and then he reacts according I mean, it really paves the way for some introspective parallels into our own past about what we have done when we have been put into into the position of being afraid. And we all know that some of the worst mistakes we have made in our history is because of not being vengeful, not being spiteful, but being afraid, not understanding And that's the beautiful thing about this character, because with him, they can explore all those elements. Every week when we see a preview and they show Saru, I get excited because I know they're going to have a little bit more of a deeper meaning to that episode. And the thing is, with the they've been pushing this whole centralized, I guess you could say, character arc for Saru about the the concept of fear inside of a person or inside of a being and what that's what makes them and uh, the thing i loved about it is it showed just how powerful taking that away honestly is freeing for saru and for a character to experience something like that that you get you you lose something that you don't like having yeah and then all of a sudden you're free of it it's very you know, it's very addictive. And that's how I, that's why I liked about in the very end is the fact that you kind of, while we all feel Saru did the wrong thing by trying to, you know, be selfish in that act. And it's very strange to actually see a character that from the very big get go, we've seen, we're, we're made to believe is a very logical character. Right. And, but suddenly it it flips a switch, but they made it believable by take by basically focusing on the one thing his character is literally centralized on as a weakness. Right. And that's honestly one of the most interesting parts about his entire character arc this week was the fact that fear. Think about this. Look at the other side. Look at the question it potentially poses. Fear keeps him in check. Without fear, what's he capable of? We must earn that freedom. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, there's a lot going on with what they're doing. There, there's so many different ways you can look at it. And we're, but let's put a pin in that because we're going to get into it after our first break. Okay. Um, we also got what looks like some potential clues that might actually prove that this crazy fan theory we spoke about last <laughs> week might actually be true. and. I know we gave a spoiler warning at the end of last week's show. We did red alert. We fired some warning phasers across the bow. But this week, I don't think we're going to do that. Now that this is turning into something very different, this is this is now becomes part of our discussion and our speculation. I don't feel like this is a spoiler. I feel like this is a a speculative element that's worthy of our discussion now. So we're going to get into that that as well during our discussion. Again, I'm telling you, it's not a spoiler. 
it's no different than anything else that we talk about at this point. Would you agree, David? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. It, it very much is. Even I, though it's honestly, it ever since we discussed it, it's become my favorite point. It's interesting. It's if, very if, interesting looking at the behind the scenes. If they pull this off, either it ends up being what the fan theory was, or even if it ends up being something else, and this is just misdirection, either way, if they pull this type of thing off in their first season. I don't think we've ever managed to do anything like that in Star Trek ever. No. I don't think we've ever been able to actually see this happen in any franchise. Yeah. So, I mean, Laurel, Dave, is the Klingon that had Ash captive, which I didn't make. I'm a fool. (laughs) I didn't make that connection those three or four episodes ago when Lorca was held captive by Laurel. I didn't realize it was her. Now I'm like, oh, yeah, it was her. So Laurel conveniently had Ash. Meanwhile, Vok is missing. So that's something worthy of discussion. We're going to get into as well after our break. Yes. And also, we seem to be have given more clues into Stamets change. This is another highlight this week. It was very brief, but very, very telling. He seems to be going through something very serious. But what does this all mean? How will it play out? theories david i know we've got them i know you got one yes i got one and ours kind of can connect i'm interested to see what other people say please tweet us at from the holodeck or head over to our facebook page facebook.com slash what is our facebook page (laughs) (laughs) hold on let me look it up i think i i I might i think it might be a good idea to know these things um you know what i've had so we have so many facebook pages yeah we have so many facebook pages i was about to say our other one which is is we can't uh we can't say anything star wars related okay it's facebook.com slash star trek from the holodeck head over there post (laughs) on our wall tell us what your theories are about ash and vok and we will talk about it on our next show all right the, this fan theory, man, I scoff at him, but this one was legit. It's actually it's actually based on sound investigation. Like someone who's paying attention can definitely see these breadcrumbs being yeah, dropped. And, and the biggest uh, the biggest breadcrumb is the fun that everyone's having with the supposed actor of Ock, Javid Iqbal. Yeah. I mean, it's right there, right in front of everybody, but no one's paying attention to it unless you're a hardcore fan. Yeah. And like, it was like funny because like when you first brought it up, I literally did. I I literally looked it up. I was like, oh my God, they're, they're really making this. They're pulling this hard. Yep. Hard. All right, Dave. We also have some news to get into before we break down the episode. This news is uh, close to home. Actually, it is home. A Star Trek Discovery prequel author to be interviewed on our shows. David Mack. We are definitely yep. happy to announce that David Mack, longtime Star Trek novelist, will be coming to our airwaves to discuss his prequel book, his thoughts on Star Trek, and to kind of kind of take us through his uh through the phases of his career as a novelist and also a writer of various episodes of Deep Space Nine. So this guy has uh, an also has an extensive Star Trek resume. So I'm very excited to get him on the show. That interview will be airing the week of November 13th. Don't have the exact day that the interview will come out, 
but it is happening that week. So look for it at our web- website, raymandigitalmedia.com, bookmark it, and it will be also released through our usual outlets, iTunes, Stitcher, the Rainman Digital app, and of course, live streaming here on our channel, RM Channel 001. So I'm excited for that as well. There was a lot of hoops I had to jump through to get his interview. And when you're dealing with individual individuals like this who are so tightly connected to a TV show that's currently airing because he is privy to a lot of the insight and story elements of the first season that I had to get a lot of approvals before I can even discuss a potential interview. And once we jump through those hoops, we are able to lock something down. I also have something working out with uh, Tilly's people as well. I can't wait to see if we could get that. That'd be um, awesome. Which if they're listening now, I'm probably going to get rejected because I don't even know her real name. name. <laughs> <laughs> it just eludes me right now. What's her real name? Hold on a second. <laughs> Jeez. I am not prepared this week. I blame you, David. Can Mary I? Wiseman. Yeah. Mary, Mary Wiseman. Wiseman. I also have uh, some feelers out to her people. Her managers have responded and said they are, forwarding the information to Mary and they'll get back to me shortly. So if we can get her on the show, that'll be a great way to end the season fall discussions as well, because as people may or may not know, Star Trek discovery is taking a break after next week's episode. They will be off the air for about two to three months and they'll return in January for the remainder of the episodes for season one. Okay, Dave, but this also leads to my next discussion where I'm really depressed uh, to announce some information about Star Trek Discovery Season 2. Yes, it's great that they are starting to officially work on Season 2. Very soon they'll be working on it. According to a recent interview and also a part of the European publicity tour, Star Trek Discovery stars Sonequa, Martin Green, Jason Isaacs, uh, Shazad Latif were joined by executive producers and co-show runner Aaron Harberts at a screening of Sunday's episode. Why can't we get a screening here in like the Los Angeles area or Phoenix? It's always in Europe. It's interesting that basically like international uh, audiences, especially with like uh, Star Trek, Star Trek seems to be bigger internationally than anything else. Yeah. So a select group of UK fans were invited by Netflix to attend the event. That's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Giving an update on the progress of the first season, Aaron Harberts revealed that they are currently locking down the finale episode 15. It's already shot. They're probably editing it, doing the usual stuff, visual effects. They're finessing it, finalizing it, which will debut in 2018. Actor Jason Isaacs added that in the finale, shit goes down. Well, I would hope so, right? I would hope so. <laughs> Harberts also confirmed that each season of the show will be treated as a novel uh, with the war novel about the Klingons wrapping up at the end of the first season. So the Klingon issue will be wrapped up. The people out there who weren't on board with the whole war element, I, I said this from the very beginning. They're not going to keep the Klingon war. That's not going to be a major element for the entire run of Star Trek Discovery. This isn't yeah. Deep Space Nine's Dominion War. This isn't Voyager's Borg. They couldn't do that. It would, be, it would be a cheap way out. And everything these writers have done shows me that they're not into taking the cheap way out. Especially since, especially since like knowing the timeline and everything else of how Star Trek goes, we're not far from the original series. Right. And it gives us nine, nine to 10 years of, 
uneasy peace or uneasy non-war to get to Kirk's era to where that interactions would make sense. Because, because you need the, the development of the neutral zone. Exactly. You can't have a, a war that goes on for seven years and all of a sudden three years later, everything's even though things were uneasy amongst Kirk and the Klingons in the original series, it was still not like they were at each other's throats because of a war. Yeah. So they have to give that breathing room so it feels realistic that as time goes by, both sides relax a bit. Yeah. And that's that's the thing is kind of like while you know, we all know that basically a lot of Star Trek fans weren't too keen on focusing on the Klingon war with the Federation. You had to explain during this time, certain elements in Star Trek lore happen, right? You have to, you have to explain the relationship between the Federation and the Klingons. You have to, you have to explain the development of one of the most, I I honestly feel iconic elements in all the Star Treks that always, it's always mentioned throughout the entire, all series is the neutral zone in Voyager uh, in, uh, in uh, discovery. There is no talk about the neutral zone because it hasn't even been formed yet. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people need to chill out and relax. And I know the people listening to this broadcast probably don't need me to say that because if they're listening, that means they're watching discovery. That means they're enjoying it. But the people out there who aren't watching the show, they kind of just need to relax, Dave, because the discovery writers aren't going to they don't want to be remembered in history as the people who destroy Star Trek canon. Yes. Everything will be fine. Take a deep breath, relax, all things Enjoy will be the ride. All things will be explained. I mean, I saw an article the other day talking about how the uniforms don't match up to the original series. And I'm like, well, you realize that Enterprise also didn't match up, right? <laughs> it, it was 100 years before the original series. This is 10 years before. We also have the 2009 Kelvin timeline version of Star Trek, which also showed a specific type of uniform that also predated the five-year mission that looked very similar to what we're seeing in Discovery. In Discovery, yeah. Let time get there. And if you remember in the second movie of the Kelvin timeline, we saw the uniforms switch to the gold, the reds, and those uh, solid colors that we end up, that the original series is so so profoundly known for. So just relax. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. I mean, yeah. like, the, the thing is, the more I've watched Discovery, the more I realize the things that we have grown accustomed to are not going to happen overnight. They're exactly. just not. You know, like the ships, the way those ships look, it's getting there. It's getting to be more streamlined. If you start noticing like the little changes they've been doing to a lot of the ships, like it's well, starting the enterprise to get is already there. out there. So the enterprise is already formed. Yeah, made. the enterprise is already formed. Which I'm again after this week's episode where we saw more Federation ships. Come on. <laughs> come on. Give us the enterprise. <laughs> I don't care if it's a CGI Captain Pike. You better do it. Fire. Just, That's just, all I want. Just it? out of nowhere. How would how would it be cool though if like the gigantic the gigantic battle in the very end mm -hmm. of Discovery we see the Enterprise show up in battle. No. Oh. <laughs> please, please, Lord, <laughs> please, Lord. <laughs> all right. So this is this is where I was trying to get to in this article, Dave. Um, these, you and I can't do Star Trek shows together because we just start going, <laughs> going off, off, going off on everything. The second season of discovery was only announced recently. Co-creator Alex Kurtzman recently told Trek movie 
uh, the team had already decided on a new arc for season two. And he had previously stated the second season may not even debut until early 2019. That's going to be a long time. Yeah. Now, if they release it in January of 2019, it might work because of the delayed full season that we're getting now because of the holiday season. A lot of shows take their breaks between Thanksgiving and Christmas and come back usually around February. So if they just do away with that break and they come back in like mid January or February, then I'm okay with that. But if they come back in January and then they're off the air for four months or three months for another break, and then the show wraps up in the summertime, I'm like, Oh, come on. Come on. I mean, I understand the way you produce TV shows are no longer as conveyor belt as it used to be. Um, I used to I had this discussion with John Worth, the showrunner for various TV shows, and he calls it factory television. And I think there isn't really a there isn't room for factory type television when you're dealing with shows with high production value like this. If you want your visual effects to look tight. You want your acting to feel good. You want your set design, the art department, production designers, everything to look spot on and great. Then you're going to have to give them time. Otherwise, you're going to get those schlocky pre-built sets that look like a backlot, you know, for the next CBS Blue Bloods Mm -hmm. episode. Yes. So I'm okay with giving them time. That's why you have shows like Game of Thrones that uh, and The Walking Dead that have a lot of times they have those delays because of the fact that production value it's high it's high production value it's very expensive to make things to do things and also you need more time in fact the the showrunner jonathan nolan for the westworld hbo's westworld another fabulous show uh he said the exact same thing he said i don't understand how the producers of game of thrones can have such a quick turnaround with their episodes it just doesn't seem like enough time and here we are going on two years almost before we get the second season of the westworld it's just it's a different era in television because of higher production value. Absolutely. And it, the one question that's on my mind by taking this extended break, is there anything else that's going to be Star Trek related that's going on at the same time as Discovery? Because like, well, what makes me wonder, are, is there going to be another movie that's coming out? Could, could that be the reason why they're no. playing with the time of no. Discovery? No. no, no, I don't think so. Because I, like, I think they're just taking their time because they need it. And I, again, if it means we're going to get a solid season, I'm okay with taking time. I'd rather them take the time they need and come out with something stellar. But hey, if they start doing work on a spinoff series like we've yeah. heard about, like uh, what was the rumor? The uh, Star Trek two director was uh, allegedly he wrote an entire season for Khan. Yes. That would be a prequel. If they decide to jump with that one or go with that one holy shit am i on board imagine two star trek shows running side by side throughout the year just like the days of next generation deep space nine and voyager where they they ran up against each other as well so it would be such an awesome oh it, it, it would be so cool so on that note david we do need to go to a very quick break then when we come back we're going to break down the entire episode from this week The Rain Man Show. The Rain Man Show. 
There's always exaggerations of how he's going to build this wall or it's going to be a fence. I honestly with Alligator Boy. That's what we need to do. I think we need to do something like the Great Wall of China to keep the Mongols out. <laughs> you know how they did that? I think yeah. I think we should create the Great Wall of America and have like fire sigils that you can light like yeah. in Mulan to yes. let them know that they're crossing. That would be amazing. <laughs> and then we have sentries walking all up and down like the beacons are lit. Texas the... calls for aid. <laughs> If you want to win the world, the world over, okay, just go the geek route. But if you want to get their vote and stuff, make the world closer to Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, you'll probably convert a fair amount of people. Yeah. There'd be be nobody complaining if he sold it like that. Right. Instead of saying, they're rapists, he should have called them like, they're like ring race. They're coming (laughs) over here. (laughs) The White Walkers. They're trying to kill us. The wildlings are making a run for it. We're going to put up the wall. Blow the horn, Frodo. Uh, and let's be honest, the Mexicans are like hobbits. I mean, they're short. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. No, I want to hear you can finish this yes. comparison. Yeah. They're short. We're down to the Trump is sour. <laughs> For more Rain Man, visit RainManShow.com. Oh. Alright, so Star Trek from the Holodeck offers additional shows for all Patreon subscribers. Follow us at patreon.com slash Digital and get more Star Trek discussions ranging from who's a better villain, Q or the Borg, Captain Kirk versus Picard. The classic argument. It's all covered on our Patreon exclusive shows. So head over to patreon.com Flash Rainman Digital and pledge five dollars or more a month and receive more shows. USAopoly is the company behind your favorite top quality custom board games made with brands you love. They're your source for authentic hot pop culture board games and puzzles. They also create award-winning tabletop experiences that will keep your game nights fully entertained with laughter and shareable memories. For more details, go to usaopoly.com. That's U-S-A-O-P-O-L-Y.com. Ever wanted something so bad that you do just about anything for it? Well, that's exactly how we feel about you. That's right. AdamandEve.com wants you so bad. We're giving you 10 free gifts with your first order. You heard me right. That's 10 free gifts to spice up your love life. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, an adventurous toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. That's 10 free gifts for you shy types who've never tried Adam and Eve before. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, a sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code DEAL30 at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts, including free shipping. That's offer code DEAL30. That's D-E-A-L-30 at adamandeve.com. Energize.
right, David? We are back. All right, so if anybody ever missed any part of this discussion, you can always find us on Stitcher and iTunes. Just search Star Trek from the holodeck, and it should pop right up. Also, leave us reviews, give us thumbs up, share it, love it, like it. David, this is the fastest growing show on the network currently. The power of Star Trek. I was, I'm surprised. I, not that Star Trek isn't great and fantastic, but there are so many Star Trek podcasts out there. And for people to find ours through the, the muck of so many, and yeah, I'm using the word muck. I'm surprised it's happening so fast that people are connecting with us. I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm static. Happy. Maybe there aren't a lot of people who are positive about discovery in terms of when it comes to fans, because we already know there are a lot of people out there, specifically the trades that are in love with this show. Yes. But when it comes to Star Trek fans, they're the vocal Star Trek fan base that runs, you know, fan sites and, and podcasts and blogs. They seem to be on the side of not really liking it as much. Well, it's not, and that's, and that's a sad thing. I mean, I know there's a few other, I think there's the wormhole podcast. I think we follow each other on Instagram. I think he or they are very into Star Trek discovery. So I'm not saying they don't exist, but I think we're few when it comes to the vocal fans. I think it's that. And also the fact that we honestly don't breathe into the trollish behavior of some Star Trek podcasts that just want to hate on everything yeah we like to complain. we like to blow ourselves and tell people that we're good and we're the best and um we are a great place for all fans to unite it's very logical to yeah. follow us as i said before david every day is the pan far <laughs> in this studio every day every day we walk in and we're instantly in heat <laughs> we're instantly in heat the green blood starts pumping it starts going to our lower extremities. All it takes and is before you nine. and before you know it, someone needs to give us the Vulcan neck pinch. <laughs> Just a little lower. A little yeah. lower. <laughs> oh my god. All right. So this week's episode, directed by John Scott, written by Kirsten Bayer. See we spackum pada bellum. Is the name of the episode. The synopsis is the USS Discovery is tasked with a high priority mission to the planet known as Fa Pavo and learn the science behind the Klingon's cloaking technology. Now, I want to tackle this title first, Dave. If this ain't Star Trek, I don't know what is. A Latin proverb is what Siwis Pacum Patabellum is. The definition is si vis paca parabellum is classical Latin and it's a Latin adage translated as if you want peace, prepare for war. It is adapted from a statement found in book three of the Latin author Publius Flavius Vegetius Renatus. Again, I feel like I'm exercising <laughs> demons right now. <laughs> I feel like I'm in exorcist. <laughs> but my point is, Dave, the fact that they're using a Latin proverb, that is, I know we're always saying this, but this is so full on Trek. It is. When I saw that title, I, I didn't know what it means until I read it. 
of course, I don't know Latin. However, as soon as I read it, I remembered it. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is something we hear a lot throughout pop culture and different iterations of books and novels. This is a common adage that's used quite a bit. It's not an unfamiliar proverb. It's a well-known proverb. Yes. So for them to use it and for, again, once again, choosing just well-chosen title that tells its own story. It, it does its own part to help add more oomph to the final package of the narrative. And if you break down that proverb, you can see exactly how that story played out and why it did. I'm telling you, dude, I mean, like the, the series thus far has really, for me, it's shown ways of doing things really really well it's intelligent it's 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 very intelligent and that's what aaron harbert said way back when he said they are going to tell a highly intelligent star trek story they want it to be smart and entertaining and when he said that months months ago that's partially why my enthusiasm for the series went through the roof because we already know that Star Trek's fun and it's great and the movies are enjoyable, but there is something that has been missing from the series for a very long time. And it's this type of stuff. It's the intellectual aspect of the series. You can have the fun. You can have all those extra little bells and whistles that make Star Trek Star Trek. But also let's bring back the the ideology, the philo- philosophical elements of Star Trek. And that's what we got this week. Specifically with this title. Because it just adds layers upon layers of things that basically make Star Trek such a deep, really engrossing story. And, you know, I understand that we we discussed it in the very beginning. A lot of fans want that nostalgic feeling. But if you just get the nostalgic feeling, your show becomes shallow. Yeah. And it's it, it you're just waiting in a pool yeah. and it's nothing big. You can't stand on the backs of. You can only stand on the backs of your predecessors for so long. Exactly. You have to become your own. Um, and that's kind of where we begin this week. Saru species. And we touched on this briefly at the top of the show. And now it's time to really get into it. First off, his species. It's an obvious attempt at creating an allegory of humankind's behavior. What fear makes us do? These are the questions it's posing this week and using it as a way to propel the narrative forward and to explore the human, not psyche, but the, but human behavior. This is nothing new to Star Trek. It's always been done. It's a very real situational issue that's been studied for countless years. The aspect of fear and what fear really drives us to doing. In fact, The spinoff of The Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, is about what you would do with fear. Like, how far would you go? How much would you allow fear to control you? And that's one of the elements that I like about that series. But this is something very similar with Saru. Mm -hmm. Extreme emotions cause disharmony. These are all elements that make up a spectrum of plausible issues. And that's what they're doing with Saru. Saru is an excellent character that follows the trend of so many before Dave. He falls into the similar category as data. 
Spock, and even Odo from Deep Space Nine. Yes. These are archetypes of Trek that have been used to explore the human condition and introspective look into ourselves. Yes, they're aliens, but how can we be relatable to a shapeshifter? How can we be relatable to a prey species? Mm -hmm. Well, they take facets of their personality and they make them relatable and and they serve as an introspective to for self-examination, which is the very basis of Gene Roddenberry 101. Yes. He never made anything just cut and dry. It was about the human condition. It was about how his story, how his characters are going to help us understand where we're going as humans and who we are and where we've been. Yeah, that's why... Out of the whole series, Saru's been one of the characters that I've been really fascinated with because I uh, I was like a lot of a lot of the fans and stuff, including myself at first, thought, how can you actually take a character that his sole concept and sole emotional tether is basically fear? So that and, and officially, I'm like going, well, are they going to pose? Saru as a constant coward type thing. See, I don't really think he's a coward. Yeah, and that's and, and that's where it's it's definitely open for interpretation. It's open for interpretation, but this episode, dude, I like the fact that they took the concept of fear and through they they separated the fact that there's a difference between being afraid and being a coward. He became dangerous. He became dangerous without that's not a coward. He became dangerous without fear. Yes. Some people become dangerous with fear. fear. So there's an argument there. They're not just saying left is right, the middle is right, or right is right. They're saying it's all interpretive to who you are as an individual, but, yeah. it's, but it's worthy of exploration. You have to understand and know yourself. And that's something that happened at the end of this week's episode with Saru. Saru understood himself better as an individual after what he went through on that planet and he didn't like it he yes. was afraid he was actually afraid of not being afraid he realized this is what i become without that fear i don't know what his full resolve will be moving forward but that's definitely where his mind is at currently the way he was used this week not only helped with pushing the narrative forward but it was also used to pose questions dave like disharmony disharmony unity and remember way back when the first episode discussion it was either the first or the second episode discussion where we discussed saru he was going to be the harbinger he was going to be the beacon he was going to be a signal a warning these are all things that we describe saru as being and this is exactly what he served this week mm -hmm. not only was he used as an introspective into the human condition and the intricacies of fear but also he was used as a way to signal a warning of what happens when there is no balance when there's disharmony and disunity and that's another great way to introduce this alien species as well something that's very evolved and according to saru's communication they were once like us and they evolved and became something else. This something is else. this is the end game of harmony and unity. You become elevated, evolved, which is really what Star Trek is about as well. I mean, how many times have we seen this this alien race that has evolved and they always show 
almost like they draw parallels between their past and our past and what we're currently living and how we're living as humans or in the TV show currently what path Starfleet's on and is there to pose questions of are you guys doing the right things? Are you going down? Are you choosing when you're getting to, when you're getting to that fork in the road? Are you choosing the right path? This is go ahead, Dave. It's a very it's a very Gene Roddenberry thing to do because in all of Roddenberry's writings and his episodes, that has always been a core question. Yeah, absolutely. To question your own to question your own choices and living with the consequences. Are you willing to do that? And honestly, dude, this episode, I think Gene Roddenberry would be very proud of this episode. I dude, I agree. Because it touched on one of his the core principles of what he created the original Star Trek series about, which was to show social and uh, emotional things about humanity yeah. to make humanity look into the mirror and stare into the abyss and see what happens. And this is what, this is one of those episodes that you truly do. And we do it through Saru, which is like, we, we have to ask ourselves, okay, if, our one weakness that we've always seen as a weakness is gets taken away from us. How far are we willing to maybe keep that feeling or maybe get that feeling of weakness back? Because, right. you know, like we always joke around that basically uh, one of the things that Kirk says, don't take away my, uh, I love it. Don't take away my pain. I need my pain. I need my pain. Yeah. It's a human thing. We need pain to actually make sure that it teaches us lessons and stuff like that. Well, if you take that away, what do you become? Right. And then you look at Saru and it's like, okay, you take away his pain. What is he? He's, he's just a blank slate. Right. That's it. Yeah. And this week, some, and I, I usually try to stay away from bringing in negativity from fans into our show into our actual discussion however i think it's a it can serve as a good platform to discuss saru's growth some have said that saru's character took several steps back again uh, because he's falling into areas that conflicts the ideology of starfleet and the federation and how it kind of he kind of went against his own characterization that we've seen so far and i uh, uh, I completely disagree with that. I feel like this was very true to the person we were introduced to a few episodes ago. Yes. I mean, look at all his actions. They are conducive with everything we know of him so far. He chose not to assist Burnham in the first episode. He chose to hurt the, tar the, tar the tardigrade out of fear. He dislikes Burnham out of fear. And what I, what I mean by that, his fear of Burnham his dislike is consistent with his behavior. He fears, he even said this, that he will not be the officer he wants to be without George Ao. And who took that from him? Burnham. Burnham. So all of this fear, because he's the prey species, makes sense to with every single decision he's made. Even the tardigrade, even when he completely bypassed Starfleet codes where he use a sentient, a sentient life form and kind of abuse them without their permission. That was fear. He didn't want to fail. He feels like he needs to prove himself to Burnham. He also needed to get the captain back. He is completely controlled by fear. fear. He is very emotional. He is very different than other first officers we've seen, like Spock and Data, 
not in when I say different, I, I mean they're used the same way. It's the same archetype. They're the same character, as I was saying, to explore the human condition and to, and to draw on those parallels so they can become relatable characters. But he's very different. He's on the other spectrum of it. He's mm-hmm. very emotional. He's very, very emotional. He's driven by emotion. I mean, you can even see it in the final scenes of the episode where he he starts screaming at Burnham, you take everything. And that was one of the most important moments for me for the relationship between Burnham and Saru that Saru finally comes out and says to to Burnham this is how he feels that she takes everything from him and now she's going to take this away from him and that and that that as funny as it sounds yes at that moment he felt no fear but then the fear changed because it was the fear of of losing it of losing it again yeah and it, it's it's very contradictory, but intentionally. Intentionally, because it, it shows, shows you that there's not one way of thinking or handling with things. There's always various outcomes to various decisions, and people by design are very contradictory of themselves. And you can and always, what fear does to you. Yeah. Fear creates chaos. Yeah, it's really good. I, and I feel like they stayed on point with his characterization. Everything we've seen so far, if anything, this is a great way to kind of push that idea forward and at the same time, give the audience something relevant to look at and mm-hmm. examine like we're doing on, on this discussion. Look how much discussion is created or how much dialogue is created. Um, let's talk about this non-corporeal life form. Life forms that was introduced this week. The, the pa- from the, the planet Pavo, known as Pavins. Apparently, they're an evolved species, yes. as I was saying, native to the planet Pavo at one point we're led to believe they were a lot like us and they then became so unified through harmony that they became one with the actual planet yep is that right is that what you guys at the gist of it that is the gist of it okay basically you know they they their spirits all became one with uh, quote-unquote nature right which we can spend two hours just on that and we're not we may do a special Patreon discussion on that, but we don't have time right now. It's just, it's just fascinating as hell. Yes. Um, I think the, what we have room to discuss this week is potential Easter eggs. I know you brought this up and yes. when I was watching the show, I did think this, but I shrugged <laughs> it off as it was too, Maybe I'm looking for things because unfortunately when you're, you know, when you're steeped so heavily in Star Trek lore and mythos for the past 50 years, you start looking at everything as a potential connection. However, you walked in and said the exact same thing before I even said it. So I'm like, all right, well, maybe there's something there. The planet Pavo. And the Pavins sound very similar to something we've seen before in Star Trek. Slightly different. However, there is room for them to change. We mm-hmm. don't know where they end up. No more. Let's not. Let's not. No more dick teasing, David. Let's just say <laughs> what it is. What, 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 do you, what did we both agree that they possibly could be a version or a predecessor of some type? They could be the they could be the predecessors, or they could be the the beginnings of the Bajoran the, prophets. Or the Bajoran prophets. 
the right. paw. Yes. And the paw were a very big part of Star Trek D Space Nine. Yes. And they never fully, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's been years since I watched the season finale. Um, they never fully explained exactly what they were. No, they didn't. It was kind of like left out in the air. It was ambiguous. Very ambiguous. And oh, the only thing that was known was the fact that they were like this energy spiritual form that they were, basically they were a lot like these they creatures. were a lot like these creatures now there were two versions of them kind of like the normal ones they were good and then there was the ones that deep space nine the paul race the paul race the ones that focused on it. it was basically kind of like they were able to possess people they, became, and they were evil yeah they were evil yeah and they took the form of almost like a fire type of energy while it was said in uh deep space nine that the paw almost were like a simple form of energy. And when you see, when you see the, the, this episode, it's a simple type of form, uh, form of energy that basically is a blue cloud looks very nature like. Yeah. And looks exactly like the opposite of a Paul Wraith, which is very chaotic fire, something that can destroy nature, but also looks very similar to what the orbs and the paw were. Yes. So uh, again, it could be anything. However, when you're dealing with a a, corp, a corporeal life form, and then you're introducing the the Pavins, and the names are so similar, why do that? And the writers, you got to remember, there's the writers of this series. The creator of this series, Brian Fuller, was a writer in Deep Space Nine. Yes. So the writer of the prequel book, Star Trek Discovery. You think they chose that guy for the hell of it? He also wrote episodes of Deep Space Nine. And I'm sorry, so, you know, like there's the, connections that can definitely be made. We may be jumping over this bridge, you know, and really trying to draw connections where there really may not be. However, it's one of those few Easter eggs that I may say, all right, could it be an Easter egg? I don't I don't know if I feel comfortable using the word Easter egg because Easter egg would be more of those discernible evidence saying, yes, that in the background, Captain Picard's, you know, uh, Captain Picard's jacket that he's going to end up wearing yes. in the future is was in the was in the background. That's an Easter egg. This might just be foreshadowing of potential things to come, like an actual true connection, a true connection instead of like an Easter egg. And I'm OK with that. I mean, th- this is the cool thing about working in the past. You can draw those correlations and connect them together. If they connect together, dude, it'd be a, such an awesome moment. And it would work. It would and make it would sense. Work. It would be so great. Um, all right, so back to Discovery. Um, Burnham says to Saru that he wasn't himself on the planet, and this is really the telling moment, and then we're going to sum up the Saru discussion. But I was. When Burnham said, you weren't yourself, but I was, and he says, we're born afraid, we Kelpians. That's how we survive. My whole life, I've never known a moment without fear. The freedom of it, not one moment until Pavo. And the reason why I want to end with that for Saru is I don't think we're done. No, I feel I don't that think so either. there is going to be more to come with this connection that Saru had with Pavo. And you said at the top of the show, it was a lot like an addiction. You know, what happens when you don't have that fear? Do you become reckless? So I don't think they're done. I think this is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Saru and this Pavo connection. We shall see next week, because as you as you know, we ended with a cliffhanger. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, the, the thing the thing also about that scene 
that I really liked was it also propelled Burnham's story too, which is something that I'm very happy that this series has been still focusing on is like, yes, we're being told these little side stories. The uh, the characters around Burnham are getting development, but Burnham herself in this final scene gets a lot of development because for the first time, I think in the entire series, Burnham literally feels that Saru is really important to her. Like, remember like when, when she was pleading with him on the planet and then in the, and then in the sick bay, she, she was telling him she needs him. She needs him. I'm going to start a fan fiction website for them too. I'm going to ship them. Bur- <laughs> Burnham and Saru. Saru. But I'm like, going to Saru you. But like, like that, that's going to be the title. <laughs> do I, do you think I have a future in, in fan fiction? Oh yeah. I think everyone does, <laughs> but I think it shows like what we've always been saying is like Burnham's th- three things that make Bur- that are important to Burnham. Sarek, George Ow, and finally Saru. Right. It's the trifecta of brilliance. And then when that, when now we're seeing that one of the trifecta is actually in danger, it's, sh- it's something that's very important to Burnham. Yeah. You know, we saw it in the si- series with Sarek, how important Sarek was to her. Now we're seeing it really come full circle with Saru. Right. And, and, and that's something they've able, they've managed to do pretty damn well. in just these short, eight short episodes, they've managed to, stay on task with Burnham's character, even though we might've deviated from the alleged main myth arc or the so-called myth arc. However, even though they may focus on Saru or Sarek or George Ao or Lorca, these characters, specifically Saru, George Ao and, um, uh, Saru and George and, uh, and what would I say? Spe- let me, let me backtrack specifically <laughs> Sarek, George Ao and Saru. When they, take us and deviate a bit into their stories they're used to add more growth and development to burnham even if she's in say the backseat like yeah. like she was kind of this week she wasn't really at the forefront it was more or less about about saru mm-hmm. but dave this takes us to our next big moment in this week's discussion and this was honestly one of the most exciting elements for me and I think it's just because of the implications. What does this mean for the TV show, for the future of Star Trek, for things that we may already know about Star Trek that they're going to be drawing connections to? Who knows, David? But Lieutenant Stamets, <laughs> what the F is going on with us, dude? There were so many what the F moments, Dave. And if you know what to look for and you're paying attention, you're going to see them. Stamets disconnects himself from the spore drive right yes seems to forget where he is and who or what Tilly is he calls her captain now there's a few things that we have here some theories right let's just go through them number one is Stamets seeing into the future a potential future where Tilly is the captain is he crossing over into other realities? Possibly a reality where Tilly is captain. What could this plea? What could this be, David? And um, I'm just going to go ahead and say this now. Place your bets. Because I'm going to. I'm going to call it right now. Okay. I hate calling stuff definitively. <laughs> I don't want to be wrong. Okay. Hey, I'll be I'll call mine right after you. Okay. 
I feel like the, okay, first off, we already know that we're going to have a mirror universe episode. It's already been announced. Jonathan Franks let that bomb slip (laughs) from between his legs uh, at a recent convention before the first episode even aired of discovery. So we already know. Could this be them subtly, subtly nudging us into that direction? And so it doesn't just happen to drop on us like, oh, suddenly we're in the mirror universe. Are they prepping the audience for something strange to happen? Like introducing officially the mirror universe into Star Trek way before it happened in the original series. I'm going with that one. What are you going with, Dave? I'm going, I'm going to call this one just because the, the, the breadcrumbs are all there. And I've been paying attention to a lot of Stamets's whenever Stamets is being shown in any of the episodes, I always try to pay attention to what is going on around him. And I'm been piecing it together. And I honestly feel that Stamets at the end of this, because they have to explain what happened to the discoveries technology before the original series happens because it magically disappears. Stamets becomes the traveler Mm. from next generation. Yeah. We've talked about that, right? Have we talked about that on the air? Very briefly. Okay. But this one kind of solidified it for me because like there's too many, there's too many breadcrumbs that lead to that because every time Stamets comes out, he's very disoriented and he mixes certain information up. And that's all they know is like, the information's getting mixed up. I think Stamets is actually traveling in between times. And when he calls Tilly captain in his brain, he's probably in the far future because we all know that Tilly's main goal was to be captain. She mentioned, and the thing was, it's, she mentioned that it's double serving. It's double serving. Yeah. Because like, in the in the very beginning, when Burnham meets Tilly, what does Tilly tell Burnham she wants to become? Yeah, she wants to be a captain of a Federation ship. Yeah, and they and they've built on that again with uh with her and Burnham working together to get her there. Like yeah. I, I will find my own way there. So we already know that she has a resolve that's no doubt going to be reached. Like she's going to reach her goal. Yeah, and um, then Stamets makes this slip of the tongue, just randomly calling her captain. Yeah, I I'm inclined to. As a Star Trek nerd, David, I'm going to say yes, it could definitely happen with him being connected to the Traveler from Next Generation. However, it's also very far-fetched. There's so many things they can do with this. Why the Traveler of all things? I mean, it would be sweet. I mean, I would even mind them somehow transporting the Discovery completely out of this timeline and putting them into the future. And now suddenly we suddenly we have our crew in the TNG era. <laughs> <laughs> There's some fan fiction. Yeah, that but, was terrible, right? But like, but honestly, the reason why I think that this might happen too is the more I think about it, in TNG, which is, you know, all throughout all Star Trek history, there's always been mysteries that have been left unsolved. One of the greatest unsolved mysteries, mysteries, if you will. Exactly. One of the greatest <laughs> mysteries in TNG was who the heck was the traveler? Because remember, the traveler just shows up just randomly. And basically, I thought the one of the biggest mysteries was what's inside of Commander Riker's pants this week. This week, <laughs> I always thought that was that the was, mystery. That was the mystery. Yeah. And then on top of that, the traveler just like has this ability to travel from point A to point B in a blink of an eye, and somehow he teaches it to Will. 
no will or he uh, uh to wesley uh, wesley he he's able to teach it to wesley yeah we'll, we'll see we'll, we'll see let's not get ahead of ourselves yeah I uh, so that's your that's your bet. That's my bet. All right, because the reason why I'm leaning to Mirror Universe because it keeps the story more grounded to their story. Otherwise, they could run the risk of possibly causing mechanical issues that we may not want if they do the traveler thing. It would be cool, and they could make it work. But why do it so soon in the series? Um, I feel like they're they're pushing the Mirror Universe idea along, and this is them getting it ready. We have to also remember that there's some people out there who's adamantly tweeting and posting on social media that Stamets already has seen his mirror universe self and an actual mirror. If you remember at the end of the fifth episode, when Stamets was looking back and smirking very evilishly back at him, not only is that poetic, a great way to symbolize that the mirror universe is coming, but it's also would make a lot of sense that he's able to see through to the other side. It's foreshadowing. Yeah. So who knows, man, but I'm going to stick with the mirror universe. I think he's crossing over into realities and David, this might be, this might be the very easy, simple way as well. Let's say he is crossing over to realities. Okay. And one of the realities is the mirror universe, right? The, the obvious one, but also there's a less obvious there's the split in the timeline that's that's different than a reality, as they have explained. A reality is different than a split timeline, right? Yes. Okay. We also have that to deal with. We have the Kelvin timeline that was created when the Narada traveled back in time and killed George Kirk and blew up that spacecraft he was on and turned the entire universe on its head. It created a, a, a split. We keep saying from the very beginning that they need to explain what timeline we are in fact in. Yes, it's obvious they're in the prime timeline, but how do you explain this to potential mainstreamers out there who enjoy the Star Trek movies? And they may not be as fully invested into 50 years of Star Trek and they don't know the differences. They're going to have to explain it. Not only is it for the sake of potential audiences out there, but it's also for the sake of consistency and cohesiveness and stories to actually differentiate between the Kelvin timeline and the prime timeline officially in a TV show. Do you think that don't you agree that has to be addressed in some way? It has to be. I mean, yeah. we've been saying this from the very beginning. It has to be done. It and has I, to be done. And I'm, I'm willing to bet this is, this is them. You doing just it. can't leave that just out there for, empty interpretation you know yeah and also i want to see evil tilly like imagine what if <laughs> what if just weird what, no what it what if tilly ends up being the captain right in this mirror universe and she's evil just hot fiery red hair super hot evilness there's nothing wrong with evilness dave uh, there, it's it, very it, sexy sometimes it, it goes with the it goes with the uh star trek equation that any female in the mirror universe turns into hot. Yeah, hold on. Let me write this down. This is more fan, fan fiction. <laughs> this is more fan fiction. No, the one hold thing on, hold on, David. I'm writing this right now. Don't mess me up. Evil Tilly. Alternate timeline. No, no, mirror universe Tilly. Red hair. She strangles people with her awesome red hair. <laughs> and the, the, the men and women both like it, including Saru, who's no longer fearful because he loves it. The end. 
the I'm bigger post qu- that on my Tumblr. The bigger question for me is, okay, if we go into the mirror universe, what is the mirror universe of Lorca? He's good. <laughs> <laughs> How messed up would that be? It's like, wow, we find out that Lorca is actually evil. Well, we know we're going to we get know. there. We know we're going to get there. That's the good thing about this is that we can theorize, but we know we're going to see it. We don't know the extent of it and how it will happen, but we do know, thanks to Jonathan Franks, we will know. Um, Dave, really fast. We have a live read. We cannot forget our friends over at USAopoly. Brand new sponsor who's joined our network. Please help us out by helping them out. They are the company behind your favorite top quality custom board games made with the brands you love, including Star Trek. They're your source for authentic and hot pop culture board games and puzzles. They also create award-winning tabletop experiences that will keep your game nights fully entertained with laughter and shareable memories. And they have an entire gamut of Star Trek games as well. So head over to USAopoly.com. That's USAopoly.com. All right. So driving home the romance, Dave, this week between Burnham and Ash. They were driving it so hard that they almost really veered, they almost veered off the road and we almost died. <laughs> <laughs> which um which means to me that this isn't going to last. You can't have you can't have this type of budding romance in this type of show. No. It you it, can't. it doesn't work. They they've done it th- I'm not saying it can't. They've done it in other Star Trek shows. But I don't feel like it would work. An ongoing romance would work in a show like this. There would be too many issues. And Burnham, I mean, kind of made the point. She made the argument for us. First off, she doesn't have a future. She doesn't see a future. When this war is done, she's going back to jail. Yes. She's going to prison for life. So this is on the road to destruction anyways, this relationship. Burnham's story did take a backseat this week. Just a bit, though even though they kind of drove home that uh, that romance a bit, but they still kept forward momentum on her character development, driving home her connection with Ash Tyler, which is going to be very important, Dave, if we are all to be correct about this crazy fan theory. <laughs> Who more and more with Ash, I'm willing to bet that he is a spy. He seemed way too passionate about his hatred toward Cole. Yes. Harboring resentment. There's something more at work here. Tyler has a whole bit as a whole in this episode. He felt different. It felt like when he was presented with the issue of staying on this planet, it affected him very differently than it did Burnham. Yes. He looked like a man that was on a mission. And his mission wasn't about to stop right now. Did you watch his face? Did you watch his face, Dave? Yeah. I mean, holy shit. First off, Shazad Latif, I think is how you say his name. Yes. Dude, he's a good actor. He is. I mean, you saw that in his face immediately. He had an issue with staying on this planet. It was very different than Burnham where she was kind of shocked. Tyler had a whole other reaction to it. Yeah. Tyler, Tyler, this one kind of it, it kind of came from left field, but it, it was a little jarring. Was Tyler's reaction for me? 
but it, but it made sense. But it made sense if you are to believe what the fan theory is. And I now, think that's why that's why it didn't bother me as much because I was like going, okay, we all know that. Oh, hold basically, on, hold on, David, hold on. I don't want to call this. A, I don't want to call this a spoiler because it's just part of speculation. However, this does feed into our thoughts from last week. Okay, so just a fair warning, right, Dave? We don't want people getting too mad at us. Yes. But our current speculation says, based on last week's discussion, Dave, is that we are on the side that potentially Ash Tyler is a spy. And I think a lot of people might think that, but who exactly is he? And there's a lot of there's a lot of clues, specifically in this episode where we may now have some true evidence that Tyler isn't Tyler at all. Yeah. He is the one and only Vok, the albino Klingon. <laughs> now, first off, we already know augmentation is nothing new to Star Trek. They've been doing that. I, I don't know how many episodes, how many episodes of Star Trek we've seen where they where augmentation is just a normal thing. They can do it. They can turn Klingons into humans. They can have Klingons. Humans turn to Klingons. But uh, Bajorans can look like humans. Humans can look like Bajorans. We've seen it before. Yes. So this isn't like a, some crazy concept if they end up pulling it off. Now, the way they've done it, however, now that I feel like this is a true potential narrative angle. When you start looking at the clues. It's backing it up more and more. For example, the way they introduced us to him under the guise of being a potential spy. And then they expertly shrugged it off as sexual harassment or I mean, I'm sorry, sexual assault <laughs> or sexual harassment. Is that, is that a thing aboard the Klingon <laughs> ships? Uh, who do you complain to HR or like does the Klingon bird of praise have an HR department? That's what I'm like, going, wait, sexual, Excuse me. Um, the. <laughs> Uh, Baytor just molested me with her bat left. I didn't like, <laughs> I like it. it. She like uh, t- she it was no penetration, but she like uh, prodded my penis a bit with it. It just made me feel very uncomfortable. Then I she would like to did it to my anus. Oh wow, <laughs> David! I would like to form a. Uh, I'd like to file an official complaint, please. Can I please do that? <laughs> Is it an honorable thing to do to complain to HR? <laughs> All right, so they shrugged it off expertly as you know, some type of sexual assault or even rape. Yes. That that's how he stayed alive was Laurel was using him as whatever she was. She liked him. Yes. In some regard, they didn't really allude to it. They didn't really go into it. They just alluded to the fact that he was, uh, he took, she took a liking to Ash. Yes. So by introducing the idea that he could be a spy through Lorca and then quickly dismissing it through rape, it's believable that the audience would also shrug it off like, oh, OK, that makes sense. They tackle the problem because if they would just to bring him into the show, we would all doubt him even more. Uh huh. But because they they dealt with it, they tackled the question and then they dismissed it. It allows for more misdirection. It was, it's actually being handled pretty damn good, whether it's going to end up being something that actually happens or not. Or he ends up being Vok or not. Either way, there is something more at work than just simply Ash Tyler was a survivor of a Klingon attack. 
Yes. There's going to be more about his character revealed soon. There just seemed, and also the way he was talking to Burnham about his past life, it seemed just too perfect. Yeah. You know, it's like, like when he's, he's memorizing telling, a story, he's memorizing a story. And I'm like going, nobody really tells a story like that, you know? Yeah. So it, it, they're doing like some very subtle clues showing that there's more, there's more to Tyler than meets the eye, whether it is Vok or not, or, you know, you know, I, I, I don't know because, you know, Hey, uh, who is it? Chabez Latif looks nothing like Javid Iqbal. right uh, well uh, this is some of the evidence we can look at rather than just kind of going through fan theories and getting all excited about it let's look at the common sense aspect uh, by looking at the actual writing that's on paper and what we're seeing on the screen okay Laurel was the Klingon captain on the vessel that had Captain Lorca and Ash okay that exhibit A that's just way too convenient for it not to be connected. Mm-hmm. Again, it could also be misdirection, which is being utilized correctly. But also, let's discuss why this theory could work. Okay. And how it wouldn't go against Vox characterization. When you're trying to create misdirection, you can't do it by destroying a character's characterization. You can't change who you've created, how you've created this character so they can fit into your nice little gimmick. It has to make sense to who they are. Let's remember what Klingons are truly about at their core. At least they should be at least the Klingons. We know later on, they are all about honor. Yes. Laurel saw the bodies of her fellow warriors maimed, mutilated, etc. Okay. And she specifically said, Cole has no honor. Laurel's description of Vok is I had a like-minded brothers and sisters, even the one chosen by Lord Takuvma to be his successor. But he was chased away, forever gone. All right, so that chased away aspect tracks with Tyler wanting to make them pay and is ambiguous about where he ended up. Mm-hmm. So they are definitely trying to create number one the fact that Laurel told that story showed that Vok is MIA yes but why would he be MIA when the last time we saw them together was them coming up with this elaborate plan that would change everything he knows about himself yeah because remember she specifically told Vok the last thing she told him you would have to do something that basically you have to give up everything everything so this works with with this theory in a lot of ways. And people may say, well, how is this going to work to help the Klingons when Cole is not honorable? Well, it does work and it tracks with it. For example, if we go back to what the Dakuvma and his house is all about, they're very old school with their beliefs. They're all about honor. They were trying to bring back the Klingon greatness. And honestly, I feel as long as they handle this very carefully and it doesn't feel all fluffy and feel good, I think Ash Tyler, if he ends up being Vok, is going to realize that Starfleet is honorable, that they're good people, and that the true dishonor, the true dishonorable element to this entire war is Cole and what he's doing. He's mutilating and killing off his own people. 
He's not acting like an honorable ruler. He should not be in charge. And I feel that his resolve and what he believes Dakuvma to want is going to become more in sync with what Starfleet's trying to do. Yes. And I feel like they will end up working together in some way. It'll be an uneasy truce, but I feel like that's how they're going to end this problem. Because more than anything, and people may say, well, what does this mean about Dakuvma? How is Vok going to just shrug off that Starfleet killed Dakuvma, particularly George Yao, right? Well, mm-hmm. first off, George Yao has been taken care of. Yes. Number one, Starfleet did nothing honorable. To die, Klingon belief is to die in battle is honorable. So all George Yao did and Starfleet was give their leader, their messiah, an honorable death. Yes. What has Cole done? Cole has done nothing but destroy and break apart the unity, the little unity that was even there amongst the Klingon Empire. So knowing Vok, knowing Takuvma's teachings and Vok's dedication to it, he's going to realize who and what side they should be on if they're truly going to resolve this issue that's breaking apart the Klingon Empire. Because his resolve isn't about war. It's about uniting the houses. Uniting the houses. That's it. And that's that's the thing. That's the most important thing. It's not thing about revenge. Out. It's not about going after um, discovery. And maybe it started as that. Maybe that's what he wanted. But I think as they go through these these steps and Ash is living with them and he's witnessing what Cole's doing and same thing with Laurel witnessing what Cole's doing, they're going to have a very different perspective by the time this is done. Yeah. And I think that right there is the most important part you pointed out. It isn't the Klingon's message. The Takuvma's message isn't about going to war with the Federation. It's about being unified as a race. He wanted to show, he wanted to bring back the old traditions of the Klingon race to unify the houses. It wasn't to basically fight the Federation. No, it's to unify the houses and bring Klingon back to prominence. Yeah. So the whole, the whole idea that basically, well, Vok should, Vok is going to be out for revenge against the Federation. No, because we even saw that on the last episode where Vok was around, right? that he saw what Cole was doing to his crew, and he was appalled by the fact that, you mean to tell me my crew is going to turn on this guy because all they really want is to eat? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. That goes against everything a Klingon tradition about being a honorable warrior. Yeah, Laurel and Vok are playing the long game, and I think if, if it, it's very it's, these types of scenarios are slippery, slippery slopes, Dave, because they can really flip a bitch on you in a way that you're just like, holy shit, that was amazing! Wow, what a great way to execute that! Or it can completely fall apart and dissolve into forced gimmicks. So I feel, based on everything we're seeing. It's going to work out if that theory ends up panning out. On that note, David, we do need to wrap this week's discussion. I want to give you your your due. So please tell me your final thoughts in a nutshell on this week's episode. Go. This episode was fantastic. I loved it. Uh, I love the callback. I love the basically the feel back to nostalgia about going to a different planet, an alien planet. We finally get to see it. We finally get to see an alien race, them interacting with an alien race on an alien planet. So it had those nostalgic tones and feelings from the original uh, the original series. Plus, 
it didn't deviate away from the master plan, which is telling a cohesive story about the relationships around Burnham and around these characters. Developing Saru was a fantastic maneuver. I think I think Saru's turning into one of my favorite characters of all Star Trek right now. Oh, simmer down, jumping the gun there. And I can't <laughs> wait to see w- what's going to happen further because after that final scene, I'm like going, Saru's not going to be the same after this. Yeah. He can't. He can't just be go back to being the snarky. No. You know, I don't trust you, Burnham. Saru. Yeah. He's there. I think there's going to be some legitimate hate. No. And there's a lot of there's a lot of room for growth for all our characters. We're only eight episodes in and to a series. I mean, typical Star Trek series in the past have been what? Twenty two to twenty four episodes. So, I mean, we're at eight. And just and just look at all the other examples of Star Trek we've had and where the development happens with our characters. Sometimes the main story and what really defines what that Star Trek series is about doesn't really start happening until season three. So the fact that we're even this far along in such a short amount of time gives me hope that this series is going to end up just being absolutely amazing. So what's your grade then? My grade for this is a solid B plus. All right. David, once again, you and I are definitely synced with our views on this week's episode and on the current episode of Star Trek Discovery, I should say. Um, This episode embodied Star Trek, and I'm not one of those people that says every week it needs to feel like Star Trek. It needs to feel like Star Trek. But there needs to be something reminding us that we're watching a Star Trek television show and not the next sci-fi epic. Yes. And that's something that the writers of Star Trek Discovery are doing every single week. They're reminding us that this is Star Trek by staying true to certain elements. And I'm not going to go through all of it because we just did. But I do feel like this is a very strong episode and I give it a B plus. Very well done. So on that note, we do have to wrap this discussion, Dave. But if anybody out there ever misses or has missed a portion of our broadcast when we're doing it live, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Just search from the holodeck, the Discovery Edition. It should pop right up on your feed. Add it to your favorites. Give us a thumbs up. Like it. Share it. Give us reviews. Tell your friends. Tell your mama. Tell your daddy. Tell your cousins. Yeah. (laughs) Help us out. Help us get there. And also head over to USopoly and Patreon.com slash Rayman Digital. Help us continue to grow so we can give you more content. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.